Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tech and Soul. I am Tamika Key. And I am Lynn D. Johnson. And we're so excited. We got our first guest, our first guest of honor, Mr. Albert Thompson. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Hi, Albert, can you tell the people, you know, give them a little bit of your bio so they understand who you are? Absolutely. So uh, Albert Thompson, Managing Director of Digital Innovation at Walton Isaacson. It's sort of one of the hats I wear. Uh, but look, I've been in the business, digital business, ooh, it'll be a quarter of a century, basically, at the end of this year. So <laughs> We all the same. We all the same. So as I like to tell people, I've seen most of what has been bought, is being bought, built. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the thing that I have, uh, I guess, a distinct advantage over is having seen things built, you understand why they created attraction, why people gravitate to them what is real, what is not going to stay. And you look at things relative to human nature and realize this, this changes nothing. We just got another toy to play with. So exactly. I'm, exactly. I'm the one to, to level set people like, yeah, but no. Or <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, yeah, I, I consider myself kind of a marketing technologist. So my, most of my career has been to figure out how technology solves if not a marketing challenge, is a broader business challenge. Uh, but still, I, my background is consumer marketing, so I'm consumer first. I'm not a digital guy. I'm not a media guy. I'm not an agency guy. I'm a consumer marketing guy because I look. There's, there's only one thing we're chasing: consumers, because that is how we all make money. Make money, yeah. exactly. Which is the perfect segue into the conversation today, um, because um, you know I think that, yes, we are all part of why we are all here. You, me, Lynn, right? The, I think the advertising and the media thread is is a is a big connector. But I do think that the name of this show is Tech and Soul because we we kind of dig into questions like, should we monetize everything? Should, should we be focused on getting people to buy things all the time? Right? That that goes with like when people say everything is an ad network, right? You're mm -hmm. in your Uber, you're seeing an ad. Even while you're wa waiting for the Uber to come, you're seeing an ad, right? Also, sorry, Vendor, it's kind of, kind of messed up because on the one hand, I'm paying for the service already. I'm paying for Uber, right? Like I could see if I was getting a free ride, but like I'm paying you Uber and paying your little driver and paying whatever fee. Y'all should not be able to actually advertise to me without my permission, but that's a separate, that's kind of a, can I opt out? And, yeah, if, so and if I opt mm. out... So you're the, person, you're the person. You're the person who asks for. Can I not get double taxed by the U.S. government? Okay, mm -hmm. hold that thought for a second. <laughs> oh, see, and I don't want to go here, Tamika, but oh, go that would be no. This would be why legalized weed is not a good thing. What? Right? Hold on. Yes, let's go. Can you dial that back? Why is it not a good thing? Because <laughs> it's a double tax, right? Before well, look, you, just... you, have to, you have to understand this. There's profit in the solution and the problem. Medicinally, it makes money. But where it falls outside the lines, I mean, legally, that's another profit center when you start talking about incarceration and prison. Well, that was the original. That's, that's the thing. Right. right. So until there's a sea change where you make more profit in the solution, then the problem has to exist to maintain that profit and cash flow structure as well. And that's what people don't understand. That's part of the problem. We'll get into that. 
in the, in the issues. In and that's actually, the, I mean, not to sidetrack on talking about marijuana. I mean, that's the thing in California, right? It is, it is not, it is decriminalized. It is legalized and it is a massive source of tax revenue, but yeah. At, and and there, it is offsetting that you cannot you can't arrest people and put them in jail for weed. But that's but it's but it's the dude who was going hand in hand, doing hand in hand. Oh yeah, is he able to make the same kind of money yeah. he was making before? And he's also that's he's already he's already been incarcerated. Let's talk about right. that, like the the generations right. of problems that that has created. And let's not also talk about the white businessmen. And, and businessmen of color, among others, that get hedge fund money to build out gigantic weed companies. But that's a separate conversation. Oh a separate conversation. Another podcast. Got to stay focused. <laughs> well, but I think it, it's a segue into culture, right? And culture, because we could talk about monetizing weed culture. And we can talk about, like, you know, I have this idea. I want to do a cannabis and chill hop festival one day where it's like all chill hop music. And we have, and we have, and there's like cannabis and there's edibles and all kinds of stuff. But like how, one is, should I be able to monetize sort of cannabis culture? And if so, how? And do I have because I'm a black woman, am I allowed to? Because I have constantly smoked weed and among other things. But so let's talk about, I think what we wanted to talk about today was culture and monetizing culture and some of the challenges and opportunities inherent in that. Yeah, I mean, look, if some of this is bigger than culture itself, it's community, all facets of community, because we're still social organisms. As they say in the church, we're meant to be, be in community with one another in concert. We're not meant to live in isolation. COVID proved that for the world, like we hate it. And the idea is that wherever there is a congregation of people, there is a tension that can be monetized, capitalized on, leveraged, et cetera. The question is, what is it that brings that community together? Is it, you know, the dying Dallas Cowboy fans that, as the memes say, on the way to the Super Bowl, veer off and then hit the recycle bin yet once again and don't make it? Is it the notion of vices or personal pursuits that we have? Is it business culture? Is it culture of money? Is it, is it exclusionary culture of millionaires, hundred millionaires, decamillionaires, billionaires? So when you start to think about it, everything lives in culture and every single facet of life has a culture around it. Look, there's big truck culture, Dodge Ram, Ford F-150 Sierra. There is Louis Vuitton culture. Are you getting the speedy, the Alma, the Neverfull? Are you getting some of the new stuff Pharrell is coming out with? And the reality is, we live in culture. We identify in culture. We that's how that's how we identify with ourselves. And Bryce put out a great report the previous year called the Culture of Trust, and they really broke down how culture really pulls all the levers of decision making as well as human individual identity. I think the the major thing now is that there's such a splintering of cultures and subcultures. We now can play out the plurality of our identities. We don't have to be one identity. We have a place for all ten of them to live. Because at the end of the day, what shows up in, in public is the, the one identity that will be tolerated or that it that acquiesces or best assimilates. But the, the average human being consists of a construct of multiple personalities of part of his mother and father, could be cousins, it could be this group, could be that group, how you like to rock, what your personal style is, or the fact that you just want to switch things up because, you know, Tamika doesn't have her, her blonde hair anymore. It's a different color now. So now she's <laughs> from one culture to another sort of oh culture hairstyle. So when you really unpack it, there's so much, it, it's so dynamic and complex and there's so many elements to it. I think people just forget when things like automation and come around that it still has to be rooted in culture and it has to participate in it. 
not just so, Jack. So why don't cultural insights play more prominence in advertising, media? You know, I know there are quite a few cultural agencies out there that, you know, produce these reports like what Vice did. Um, I can't think there's one that has pink. It's their color. I can't think of the name of them right now, but they do like these cultural insight reports. And um, and it's like it was maybe hot and talked about for a while, but still right now, like in the in the field that I'm dealing with, um, people are still talking about behavioral insights. Is that culture as well? They're talking about behaviors. Like, does that map to culture in a way? I still don't think they're looking at overall culture. They're looking more at like individualized behaviors more than overall culture. And then that makes me wonder, is that what privacy sandbox with things like topics is trying to lean into? Um, so yeah, but you, you brought up so many other things, but I'm going to go with it. so many ways I could have gone after what you said, but I went there but, first. Um, yeah, but yeah it, what it, it's a great question when you start talking about why aren't people delving into culture? First of all, it's, it's very dynamic. It's, it moves at the speed of the consumer. It's hard to chase down the average tools that can really capture the essence of it and what it lives and how it's represented are very much boots on the ground. And if you understand where most research lies, it, it lies in a boardroom, in an ivory tower. So this is why street teams, if we remember those days, were so popular because they touched the people. And they had more intel than anyone other than someone operating a bodega or like a food truck or 7-Eleven. Very high touch, very intimate, high churn, a lot of uh, uh, evolving foot traffic. I remember being in an interview and the guy asked me, well, who's the smartest marketers on the, on the market on the planet? And I'm like, Procter & Gamble. He was like, uh, you're not wrong. He said, no, the savviest marketer is the corner deli in New York. Club promoters. Right. But, well, <laughs> that too, because they they understand the strategy of upsell and cross-sell. They remember your name. It's very intimate. It's a vibrant environment. And what he basically got into is this idea of customer intimacy that is really rooted in the culture, whether it's a culture of the enterprise you're running or the culture who's walking through the door and they pay attention. They are effective listening brands. And in one of my talks around bias, the average brand is a poor listener. They're not a listening brand. Look, you could be listening because you're just, you're not apathetic. You actually listen with intentionality and you have tools that help you to accelerate the listening. You see, we've seen a few brands really galvanize pop culture because they really listen to their targeters. Red Bull is probably amazing at it. They've channeled the, the inner X game guy that nobody wanted and now have personified and put it on steroids and now they have a Formula One racing team. I mean, there's probably no greater success messaging than someone who looked at a culture, identified it, created a brand ethos around it and then accelerated it and then became the, the moniker that you'd want to chase. So it's not X games, like you want to be Red Bull and the waterfall below them. That, that's but, that's but, very intentional to achieve that. But Red Bull tastes disgusting. And wait, let's not make, with vodka. Red, not Red with Bull, vodka. What Red Bull tastes is well, okay. For, not with vodka. I love that you say that though, Albert, which again brings me back to the kind of question that I started this off with. Red Bull is the perfect example. They get the culture, they understand sort of that that X games, but yes. is Red Bull healthy? Yes. Well, here's is the thing. Red Bull healthy for those athletes to they contribute to the culture. When you are a contributor, yeah. financially. A level of movement, a bravado, 
people care less about what it tastes like. Remember this, consumers, when they make choices, make it in two frames. The first frame is my consideration set. Why would I consider it? It has to be price appropriate, proximity, convenience, reliable. Why they fall in love with it is a totally different reason. Mm. People considered an energy drink based upon a few parameters beyond a well-branded can. While I fall in love with it is my one of choice. Well, look at what they represent. They represent that dude. And mm. I, I, I kind of feel like that dude when I consume it. And when people see me, they're like, oh, you that dude, at least for the next hour or two hours, especially if you're about to turn this up. And that's the emotional connection that's created. And what people don't understand is the consideration frame is one, but the, the falling in love and the love affair is another one. What Red Bull does is properly establish the frame as it's evolving. The first frame is why us? The second frame is why us over everyone else and why you will never live, leave, leave us and what membership now means for you now that you are with us. Mm. And that is someone who has studied culture and then participated it and then created new subcultures underneath it and expanded it and say, hey, we, we can now take it this way. This was never part of it, but we're going to actually pull it in. It's almost like an acquisition. Snowboarders, you're, you're part of you're with us now because right. we, got, we got BMXers. Uh, motocross, you're with us. Safari racing, doom buggies, yep, that's us too. Oh, you're stunting and riding four-wheeler down downtown in DC or New York? Yep, we'll take you too. So then it's even like, parkour, even parkour, yeah. they pull. But I think what you're hitting on is that sort of there's that core ethos of this person who's adventurous, this person who's like, I'm I'm gonna play outside, if you will, right? It's not it's not necessarily, I think people do do Red Bull to study, right? But it's, you're not thinking, you're thinking I'm this athlete. I have a question for you though, because Red Bull, Red Bull is a perfect example of a brand that I think has, to your point, created a space for culture, nourishes culture, supports culture, and then has built a billion dollar empire off of that. Yeah. But you said something earlier and it was like, you know, part of the reason that so many brands or people in our space don't dive into culture is because it's intimate and it moves at the speed of light. Is there, is there a tug of war between intimacy and scale? Can you deliver, can you be intimate as a brand, right? But then also still reach millions of people. And if so, how do you do that? Well, the first thing is, I think you have to really play up. You got to play up this notion of being an object of desire. Look, life is all about laws of attraction. I tell people, you want people to work with you, Work, work for you, you, look, you, you want people to date you, sleep with you, it's all about attraction, pay you money, hire you, whatever. And, and brands that do it well really romance laws of attraction. And look, they could do it through the US model, over distribution, or through the European model, scarcity. So let's take Louis Vuitton versus Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola philosophy is desire is everyone will have access to our bottle, whether you're a homeless person on the street or you're a billionaire. The European model is only for the elite of the elite or if you have a connection to get to it. What, what Louis Vuitton has done is threaded both channels between what you can now only find on the realreal.com used because that went to collectors who don't, now don't want it. So they're offsetting it. But you, you as the common person can never get your hands on it. The classics that everyone has, like, you know, women have the Neverfull, maybe the Speedy, the Alma. Don't ask me how I know all these things because I've made the purchases. And then you start to get into know. Unique, unique collections of what Pharrell's mm -hmm. bring with new materials, new colors, new patterns, new texture, new tenets of style taken from other factions. So now he is, they're able to play the model of 
scarcity, intimacy, uh, desire at the highest level to, okay, everyone can get in this game. And matter of fact, we go in the real, real, you get it 50%. It's got a little wear and tear on it, but hey, 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 use Louis is sometimes better than a new of all the other competitive brands. But that's something that transcends time. And the main reason you get there is because diversity of thought. And the, the, the one thing that I get to really greater diversity of thought, why it matters, because people talk about, oh, why DNI, why, why giveaway bias, why multicultural? The question is, why not? The companies that bring in diversity of thought have a more expansive, robust product line. They're more profitable. They have they have a greater range of desire they're able to exercise. Let's look, let's look at beauty. So beauty is no longer long about what Mary Kay says. Then it went to the Mac counter to really uh, push artistry. Now we have kitchen chemists making all kinds of stuff, mostly women of color. And now every woman of every race can put on a completely new face, almost a completely new ethnicity. It's amazing now. You can be whoever you want on every given Friday. So when you start to think about, well, who's able to do this well, it's the people who brought in the diversity of thought to really revolutionize product design and, and service design that has greater acumen. And now have they have all these levels and layers they can play at and create all these narratives and sub-narratives to really become a company of unstoppable proportions. And that's where we see this notion of momentum to become an unstoppable market force. Let's look at Jordan brand where you have hope. We need women in it. So let's have lows. And let's have mid right. highs. Women don't right. want them. Lift here. Let's get more colors. You know, let's get patterns. Let's get a Louis pattern on it. Let's get a Gucci pattern on it. Now let's do a vintage. Now we have custom shoe designers that'll rip apart a shoe and a basketball mm -hmm. and birds to and announce. But then didn't but then didn't they fire their pregnant athlete? Like didn't right. they fire their pregnant one of their pregnant one of their women pregnant um spokespeople? Like again, I think there is what I'm just hitting at is, and again, it's not there's these amazing examples of brands that do tap into the culture, but is there a cultural responsibility to to hold up your end of the bargain? Yes, let's have women, let's make shoes for women, let's get women to buy some of these shoes. Do we actually honestly support women doing sort of being female athletes and being pregnant at the same time? Lynn, though, uh, you're going to say something. Well, there's the difference between the business side. Go ahead. I'll come the, in. And the brand identity side. Mm -hmm. well, the brand identity is a totally different conversation because you're playing for the long. But look, some of these liquor brands, they're like 500,000 years old. Especially oh and like, how do they transcend superpowers? <laughs> like before the Soviet Union and and long after the USSR. I mean, they, so when you-, they when you part, How they transcend, they partner with Jay-Z, they partner with Diddy, they partner with, that's yes, how they do it. Yes, right? they move to different cultural factions that will carry the ethos through the next generational movement. And then they're looking for the next one and they'll essentially do the same. Not a lot of brands do that well. You almost have to have a doctrine, almost mm -hmm. like a constitution that will live to infamy that is handed down for all the operators to understand this is what this brand looks for. I, I recently was unpacking why the Rockefellers are more successful than the Vanderbilts because the Rockefellers were using large insurance policies and in, uh, whole, whole insurance, we call it now, making draws off them to use as a bank to finance endeavors. And they say the Vanderbilts spent all their money. Now, money. Okay. I, I think if you look at it, there's- Right. So one of them had a, a, a family lineage philosophy. This is how we will forever survive and stay relevant. And the other ones kind of spent their riches. And you see the difference between that. But you can see brands that have a similar ethos 
where it's like the master plan is a thousand year plan. It is a long plan. Right, right. So you 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 earlier mentioned Procter and Gamble, right? And I'm thinking about Procter and Gamble, how they make smart moves, right? Uh, like they purchased Myel Organics, they purchased Bevel. Right. <laughs> yeah, I see you making, you know, you and I got that hair thing that yeah, yeah, we I talked it. about I before. Yeah. Finding the right hair products, right? These were black owned hair product companies. And yeah. now Procter and Gamble was like, boom, we don't know this market, but we see now this market is booming, right? How do we get a piece of it? Yeah. Well, we tap into we tap into the authenticity. Right. And um, and make it available to all. So now it's not just available to black people. It's available to the mainstream. Yeah. So, but I, then when where, where do you draw the line between culture vulture and culture yeah. supporter? Well, this right? it's, you got to look at these. Let me give you a few of these quotes real quick. And these are mine. First of all, the attention is the cash value of time. Okay, attention is the cash value of time. We talked about that. Only, mm -hmm. People will tell you that the only true wealth is the quality of your time. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason why attention is so important is because attention gets you influence. Influence gets you to move market possibilities, which generates money. What a lot of these major conglomerates figured out is, oh, you aren't just clamoring and garnering attention. You now have influence for a populace that now is a money maker and at this point a cash machine. We treat that as real estate. Attention really is the ultimate real estate. So what you find in business in this country is everything is treated like the land. And there are certain poor barriers to control. Like we need to own a piece of all land that's profitable and moving and matters, point blank, period. And that is what you see when these land grabs get made. Same thing, we look at the, the, the roll up of Paramount. We're starting with Viacom and then Paramount for BET, VH1 and Logo. It's, a, oh, so the populace is now starting to move to this. It's garnering attention. It now has influence, thus impact, shaping the cultures. So now its valuation has gone up now. It's not reflected in the stock price, but what people will say that, you know, managed service 10X valuation, self-service 20X. No one's ever measured cultural impact. It could be 100X. And it's usually bought for cheap, well below its, its consumer value in a movement. We just don't understand the multipliers, but there are other companies that do, and they snatch these up as early as possible before it just doesn't make good business sense. And now they're, they're losing love of profitability. So when you see Unilever having to purchase Sundial, which is all the black beauty brands, uh, Shea, Madam CJ, it's a similar type of performance. We didn't take them seriously. We tried to do it ourselves. It was a failure. We don't, we don't understand the mechanism at, at what we call uh, ethnic uh, DNA-based product development because that's what a lot of this stuff is, taking in those cues. They now matter. It's a smart business decision to own it in a portfolio if they're going to help them get distribution so there's wider adoption and acceptance from the communities that purchase them. Is this is other things we've talked about. Go ahead, keep going with the distribution. That often happens. The distribution, is, the distribution is the big piece. I mean, I think there's, but there's so many layers to that, right? Because yes. there's the understanding of the culture. There is the business going, this makes good business sense. There is the small entrepreneur who's probably busted their ass and liquidated their savings to build Mayel, right? Yeah. And 
to build my L and then she should get the exit. However, and I bring, you know, I, I come back to, to sort of ask these questions in the mix. She gets the exit, but then the community that she originally kind of built this product for is then mad at her for getting that exit. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really and interesting. They're mad at Rihanna right now for selling part of her business. Selling part of her well. really? Wow. Yes. The first thing that people have to understand, is this is all a natural part of evolution. This is going to happen. I think what their people are getting into is how will the product formula be tampered with? This was a huge Shea Moisture issue. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, you Rich now Lou. change yeah. the componentry because now you want to increase margins by having cheaper ingredients. It's like water now. Right. And the fallout, <laughs> the fallout literally is black women's hair falling out. And that's right. look, the, the black community has seen this repeated pattern over and over again. When we get acquired, things get watered down. Because at that point, it's less quality and speaking to the culture. And it's about squeezing margins against the, the, the product as it stands versus an evolution and making it more dynamic. I think the, the, the backlash of the community is we know what will happen. It will get diluted. It's the same thing in the purist and hip hop and saying, oh, you can just auto tune it and do a beat and mumble rap it and you sell a billion records where these guys were literally on street corners freestyling to nail lyrics down in the cold you know, with hoodies on, thick jackets, and everyone sounded very different because that was the only way you could survive. And what you see is the dilution of- Now you can music. deep fake it, right? Exactly. So I and want it's, to- it's a, similar, it's a similar lane. So I want to take us into a segue because we've been talking about the advertising, not as much publishing, but we've definitely talked about the advertising lens. Albert, you swerved us right into- the, the other lens that we look at things through and that's as black women and black people. And we don't have to stay here for, for super long, but I do, that is the thing around sort of culture and to Lynn's point, culture vulture. culture and to, to, you have brands sort of wanting to home in on these insights, like this vice report that you, that you shared with us, which was actually super interesting, right? So you're trying to reach Gen Z. Is there, what's the line? between appropriation and and vulturism and sort of support and and do black creators or black entrepreneurs or black people working in advertising and media need to keep that in mind as as we go on about our day yeah, before you answer before before you answer i dropped something i dropped a link for y'all because I, I was killing me not to remember the name of this agency. Mm. It's a cult, culture agency called Sparks and Honey. Sparks and Honey. Yeah. And they say they quantify culture. So let's keep that in the back end while mm -hmm. as you think about, yeah, as you think about this response. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the 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 line starts very early. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to accurately pick apart contribution to culture versus culture jacking or stepping into moments in culture and stepping back out. There typically is a through line of commitment that's bigger than that. I always joke with people, you know, in the karate gig when Jackie Chan tells Jaden Smith, Kung Fu is in everything you do, Chandra, is how you put the jacket on. Hey, take you see organizations that's in everything they do, meaning they're supporting operators behind the scenes. They're donating to the community. They're trying to leverage, drive some sub-narratives that's more uh, CSR-oriented than not. 
Uh, and you can understand that the commitment is therefore beyond. It, the top leadership has had a president or representation in these circles. And genuinely, the ownership is not about making a 100% buyout land grab. It's we want to own our, a, a percent of it's, you know, if you look at Google in the early days, it was owned by a series of players with hands behind it that all had a small percentage as a big experiment. And part of it was it because of the experiment, and part of it was we, we just need to be able to participate enough to see where this is going, to fine tune our mothership over here, to kind of compete with that, even though we own a percentage of that. And that's very different in the hands in the pot versus, you know, we just need to buy it, buy it, and we may just phase it out. We may water it down. And look, some of the watering down is the dilution of its purity, almost not by accident. I can't even say it's always about margins. I, I can say that it's like, the, the authenticity is taken out. The, the oomph is taken out. It's resonance in the community is taken out. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't have the personal impact. So you've stolen a little bit of the soul from it. I don't want people to think that that isn't sometimes by design. There, there are bigger agendas at play here. And the thing that I want people to always understand is you have to look at who controls how the infrastructure is controlled. Because that tells you everything where this is going to go and where this is going to land. Oh, sir, and this is such is, a segue. Yeah, and some this of these things- This is such. <laughs> yeah, some of these things are very empowerment-filled. It's not just about the product. It's about the, oh, we have something for us. And whoever that us is, and it doesn't matter if the us is black or white, but something for us. But if you all of a sudden take that something for us, we we went several steps forward, and then, we, then we've taken several, several, several steps back. And I think what people don't understand is that there's sometimes a design in that. The question is, why is the buyout not coming from other companies that that have the representation looks like us? Look, there's nothing wrong with buy, Byron Allen buying beauty brands. If you got the money, I grant, understand it's not your, your wheelhouse. And some people say, well, I don't want to sell to him. He's a network guy. And I'm like, yeah, but he's probably going to maintain the integrity of the product. So if I were a beauty brand, I don't have a problem selling to him and him having another portfolio. It's what Warren Buffett And also being able to help get your beauty brands on the map from a media standpoint. What about companies that are designed, what about companies that are designed, that are using technology and insights and analytics that are supposed to support entrepreneurs of color, but are predatory? We won't name names, but in our industry, let's say, there are some companies that, to your point, to your point, the goal is to uplift, or theoretically, the goal is to uplift and empower and drive revenue to media owners of color. Right. But then the deals that are cut seem to be predatory. What happens then? Yeah, that's a good Well, look, I think, I think the reality is people have to remind themselves, nobody, nobody's here to save anybody. Nobody's here to save us. Like, if you want there's to no, there's no, Captain Save-A-Ho is a myth? Yeah. What? So I think people are delusional as to what goodwill they think is going to happen. It's very mm -hmm. different. Alpha Phi Alpha and Alpha Kappa Alpha are running some of these initiatives because look, they're here for the long view. It's one thing if it's the boule. It's the one thing if it's uh, you know on the Hispanic side or queer side or Asian side, one of these organizations like the Asian uh, American Advertising Federation. I mean, they, they have a purpose bigger than it's going to live beyond. But I think when people start to look at it, it's like you, you're deluding yourself expecting that people have some genuine interest here. And look, most of the time they just want the land. Oh, there's multicultural ad dollars. That's the land we need it. It's Let's capitalism park here to, mm -hmm. you know, to to capitalize on the opportunity because we want to be in the conversation. And it's about money. If there was no money there, 
they would not care if it there was just no will, yeah, or CSR credits, mm -hmm. or for some other for, you know some other form of equity. No one's in the sandbox. But you have to understand that in business, all people are chasing is the money. Look, money is constantly in transit, constantly because it's constantly moving because the U.S. prints it, so it's always moving. The question is, <laughs> people are trying to boost it in transit. You know, when Web3 started to rear its head, I'm like, the money's moving. And this is where companies said that VCs like, hey, we didn't donate no more to Web2, no more short loans. Right. Like, mm, these companies don't need money. They had their run. They overhired. We're going to go to the next frontier because the money is moving. People need to understand in the context of the money always moving, that that means the agenda in the next trajectory is moving in fluid as well. So, look, what did somebody say? The problem with war is you can't get it to stay where you put it. No. And it's the same thing if you were to metaphorically look at the war for market share and opportunity. You put it here, but it's going to move over there. So if you're like, I've got the business here. I want the acquisition here. Well, the person acquired just moved it to way over there because that's the new frontier. That's where they were going to take it anyways. And I think people just need to understand actual business dynamic. And the laws of business aren't personal. That's why they call it business. I think people start stop having to get so personal about it because it's business. If that if that's the case, you need to stay in the nonprofit world, where it's less about right. the money, more about the causes. Right. But then the woman who owned Mayel, the dude who owned uh, Bevel, they now invest in other companies, right? And other startups, Black-owned startups, right? And even um, yeah. the... Why can't I think of his name right now? And I know him. Um, the dude who started Bevel, he did start some other organizations. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you. I, I knew him from way back in when he was working with Twitter. When he was the uh, VP. Yeah. Yeah. When, but even before oh, that, yeah, like when he Twitter. was still oh when he was yeah. still in college and he was like interning and um I used to have to hit him up to get in the parties at South by Southwest. Yeah. Anyway, but back to but Tristan, right? Tristan actually has done projects that help to see the next round, the next generations of Black entrepreneurs get paid, the right? Thing, the thing that people, like one of the smartest things I've ever heard, I was working in a web development firm. The company was called Round Two. I said, why is it Round Two? Well, we launched the first one. We sold it. We launched the second one. Hey, you sold the first <laughs> one. Bought the the, the partners bought a beach house in Maryland, and now they run the second company. And and then that they're like, and we'll exit from this. And the reality of it is, if you sell Bevel, launch the next iteration of Bevel for the next generation. I think what happens is we get so personally tied to our one shot, where there are other segments of the population they just sell it, go launch the next one, sell it, launch the next. Keep going, one. keep going. Yeah, keep actually, going. all they do is watch them. They're they're, they're okay. They're, so. Back to a soul thing here. Yes, which is perfect. I think it's because people feel like they're losing their soul. To if your they, point. Yeah, that if, if they we operate, we didn't, we if didn't they operate. Our, yeah, right. we didn't lose our soul in the civil rights era. Because look, most people say, by the grace of God, we are still here. We should, we, we definitely should be extinct. But the reality of it is, is like if, 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 you, if that is survivable, then so is selling off one company. I would tell people all the time, you got to have company, you're going to sell company 3.0. You need to have the business plan for 6.0 because mm. you're going to stay there, mm. monitor the marketplace, innovate and go launch 6.0. It's, it's, it's not that difficult. Like I understand all that's tied to it, but if you have a larger North star 
it shouldn't be personal to let it go. Just plan to launch the next one. Or as, as Tristan is, I'm going to be an investment entity and launch the next six of them. And because be that's also, and that's all the longevity. Yeah. I mean, and okay, we, but you, you have a, a faction of our community who will be like, that is not African economics though. Oh, so wait, you know, I want to I want to dial that back uh -huh, so uh -huh. because that's one place to go, which is which is definitely a thing. Where I was going to go with it though was actually back to the cultural dossier that Albert shared with us in the beginning. Because if you're talking about Gen Z and you're talking about these different youth cultures, they are literally all about. They, they can hold these two ideas in the same in the same breath. They can say, yes, I'm about to make money. Yes, capitalism is a thing. No, I do not have to lose my soul. And so the question then becomes, is, is there, because Albert, you, I think you bring this very kind of cut through, like, look, business is business. People got to make money. This is how things have happened, which is, which is valid. But we also understand that capitalism sort of end state, late stage capitalism, as they call it, doesn't serve everyone and it's, and it's growth at all costs. And so we have this new generation of people saying, look, we don't want to live in a, we're not going to live in a utopia where everybody gets universal basic income and everybody can just be happy, but we also don't have to have everything be predatory. And so are we at a place, are we getting to a place where, for example, you can mine or mine and mine the culture and monetize it, but also nourish it at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think what people have to understand is marketplace, marketplaces have their own culture and their own business rules, their own rules of engagement. If you don't like them, get out the game. You can't change the rules unless you create effectively a new game and a new narrative. But that's a massive pulling things over to another side. You, you see that a lot of the younger generation of uh, athletes, especially uh, NBA players, have all these ventures now. You know, some of them are invested in crypto, NFTs, Web3, uh, apparel. I mean, because they learned from the previous generation of the Michael Jordan era, where most of them went bankrupt yeah. and started to spread their wealth around and get into their, their next chapter post being an athlete. That comes with the acumen of learning and paying attention and obviously studying other businessmen that have their hands in essentially many things. Uh, the idea that, look, you just don't want to be an operator at a company. You also want to be in advisory boards because that's an, another opportunity, business stream, revenue stream, whatever stream, wealth building stream. These, these are things that are very first generation to us. The biggest mm. thing people lack is just basic exposure. Mm. People need to get into a series of different rooms. Again, the exposure of how the rooms are operating, how the people are operating. People would always ask me, oh, why don't you go to that, these conferences? I'm like, because everybody's there. Everybody in the multicultural community is there. I'm going where there's underrepresentation. Yes. One, the spook, pull us, the, pull us the spook who sat by the door. That's right. what they call and it. And yeah. how, how the rules of engagement work within that circle. Because those are different cliques in different communities. And what I find is that people don't want to get out of their comfort zone to explore and discover to report back to the populace about sort of the new land and frontier. And when I, when I make the joke that everything's treated like the land, other communities are constantly exploring new, new land, mm -hmm. new money, mm -hmm. and they're just curious as to where the next money train is going to be. And they want to be there very early. Mm -hmm. And when you start to look at even things like the Web3 bubble, the crypto bubble, that was not an accident. It's a run-up of hype to get everybody on board, for the right people to stay behind, for everyone to bail out, for it to return, 
so that the right people who want to maintain of there from the beginning. This has played out numerous times over and over again. It's not even creative anymore. It's like a basic news cycle in terms of what they say. The first part of the news cycle is it's not happening. The second part is what's happening is not as bad as we thought it was going to be. The third part is it it's it's happening going to be bad. And the last is you know O S H I T. It's going to be awful when everything changes. And that's the same thing with weather, hurricanes coming or stock market crash or COVID. Like we see it play out at the, uh, the crypto market. These things are engineered and manufactured. People just don't understand how, how it's wired. I, I, the best quote I heard is that the super rich and powerful have long checked out from the retail media version of reality. And I'll say that again. Checked out from the retail media version of reality. They know how it really works and they're the ones pulling levers. So when you get into this idea of this intersection of tech and soul and businesses acquiring minority operators and then doing something else with it, the retail version of reality is, oh, they'll, they'll, there's goodwill there. They'll maintain the integrity of it. They'll help us move and they'll put us in our community. That's not what they're doing. That's, that's, that's never what they're doing. That's not, what, that's not even the, the rules of engagement, the business rules. Regardless of who's being acquired, what you find is that a, P&G has to, has to buy Dollar Shave Club because it discounted a challenger and, and was going to uh, take away from the flagship Gillette. We now yeah. need to own it to understand that model, to own the shaving business. Gillette, you're just no longer, the, there's two levels now. Right. So you see these movements where it's like too expensive to build it, don't understand the consumer industry, don't understand the model, easier to acquire, it's much smarter. We now own in the portfolio and maybe the challenger brand would teach the master brand they really built the category and this will now innovate. And so, so we have the innovation lab, Dollar Shave Club, and we have the master legacy brand and the two will now benefit from, from each other and become all more the more powerful. And then now you see new shaving brands starting to emerge that maybe disrupt the, the, the other two. Like the, these are things that have happened for forever. And these are why companies acquire companies and then they either roll them up own them as two properties or dissolve one of them because the intent was they just didn't want them on the They just didn't want the competitor in the market. Right, right. And I, I get all of that. I get all y'all are saying, I want to play devil's advocate for a second, right? And again, like, I guess what I was talking about more before was like uh, pan-Africanism. Yeah, yeah. Economic theories, right? Where it's like um, the pool of the resources are for the economic power of the common good. Right? right. So to me, that's part of the soul of the people. Right. So how can we as black entrepreneurs play in the game, but also maintain, maintain right? Which is that, what that's I was going, and that's kind of what I was getting at with the and, and I don't think it's just devil's advocate and I don't think I'm Pollyanna, right? But I do think that there's an element of, and Albert, maybe you actually have research into this and you're like, and actually it's just, it's just hype. But I do think there's an element of maybe not even just the super rich people waking up from the retail media version of life and people saying, look, I get it. I got to pay, I, I, I have to pay my bills, right? I have to have a roof over my head. But at the same time, this job is not going to be the be all end all part of, I'm not gonna give like my grandparents did. I'm not gonna work 40 something years for this company and have nothing and have no life 
um, experience or whatever to show for it, right? There's this element of, I think, people understanding we are in this capitalist system. Is there a way to operate outside of it or not be chained to it? And that's my last question, I think, as we, because we've covered entrepreneur, we've covered kind of the advertising and publishing piece. I think we've covered we've covered the, the Black people piece. We didn't cover the creator, but maybe that's what it is. As a creative person, as someone who thrives in a creative industry, you know, what do you, what do you think is is kind of the future of culture or do, will we con continue to see culture jacking? Will we continue to see the rise of brands like Red Bull? Or do you have any, any kind of closing words or parting advice from the cultural perspective? Yeah, I think, look, there are brands who get it because they were birthed out of the culture. So it's easy, it's part of the fabric of who they are. It's, it's the fabric of the leadership from the decor to the offices to how they show up and present. It is very much infused in who they do. It's easy. It's second nature. It's what they live and die by. I think organizations that struggle, the ones that have nothing to do with culture, never really seen it, don't have representation, don't, as Aaron Walton says, don't face the world the way it faces them. That's a huge point. They're the ones that have to jump in these moments to get a bump or a hit or to seem relevant. But at the end of the day, they aren't infused. The re reason why Tristan Walker did well with Bevel is the product was designed from the ground up, reflective of the culture in particular at the beginning of this massive beard movement. Let's take yeah. it out James Harden and said, dudes like him need a solution and there will be more like him and Rick Ross if I create product that makes it a staple. So his product design and development is based from the beginning ground up. That's why success is imminent. What you find is organizations that are, aren't high touch, aren't a part of it, or just in categories where it's, it's not really infused with it. So they don't know how to be relevant in their ways that they can be around it and participate and be somewhat agnostic, but they are not the voice of the culture. You see snack brands between you know, your, your, your Cheetos, your Doritos that keep a place on and flirt with it. At the end of the day, there may be nothing sexy about the ingredients, but they're looking at the culture of food and tasting and snacking, what's driving it to be around it as a participant. All they wanna do is be part of the live stream and storyline. They don't have to be the star. They just wanna be part of the live stream. I think what a lot of people aren't doing is looking at product and service design at its base level in picking a lane that they should live in. They're just kind of anywhere and everywhere. The other thing, the reason why people can't orient around culture is what I call the competing identities. They're the identity of the organization that was founded, the forefathers or four women, whatever you want to call it. There's the identity of the people running it now. There's the identity of what the consumer says you should be. And those are competing identities. And what people can't figure out is who are we supposed to be? Because the people on the wall, for the reason we have a job, even though they're no longer here, that is, the, uh, that is who we're trying to say true, true in the doctrine. But we represent a new populace of thinking, but is that really acceptable? And how do we thread the line? And the consumer is saying, we're supposed to be this person over here, but we don't even know what that really even means. And you can see that play out in the struggles of just mastering social media and the fact that everyone's still looking wonky around things like TikTok. So that's the problem, the struggle with the whole thing of cultural adoption is the competing identities at an organization first that can't figure out their true North Star of who they're supposed to be to then look at culture and say, where is our lane? Where can we win? Where can we be rooted? Or even in a rebirth, now be better grounded. And look, you can see brands like Ciroc have to find a new footing in culture because of things that have happened with Sean Combs. And look, that's a transition they Ooh. will make. <laughs> that, 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 probably live another 300 years. 
But that's one of those things like, okay, we have to paint a new North Star. And what are we going to now tie ourselves to based on our original aspiration when the brand was originally created? We, we, made, we, we leveraged this season. It got us 30 years, 20 years. Now we have to move into a new season. But liquor brands, alcohol and beverages have an opportunity to be more fluid, move with greater fluidity because they almost act like record labels at times. They act like they're 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 breaking a new pop Dude, that's just the whole, I cannot even. <laughs> this is just we we have to have you on again. Again. We have again. to have you on again. We also have to have you in our in-person event. We are going to end. Albert, how can people reach you and find out about you? You know, I mean, look, the best way to find me is probably follow me on LinkedIn, because you know, I'll I'll riff a few highlights and video clips just like from this. And look, all I'm trying to do is elevate the space elevate the people who want to receive the narrative, you know, the brands that I touch, people I work with, doesn't matter. People just want to talk and get a new perspective. I mean, that, I think that's that's been my calling for quite some time. So that's it. That's sort of all I know. And I think the way I look at it is there's so much underachievement. There's just too much possibility. As people will tell you, there's just too much money out there. We that's can all eat. Yes, we can, we can all eat. Absolutely. We can all eat. And with that, I think we will end it. We will see you guys in our next our next episode. Till then.